Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Daniel Kraft, who probably wears more hats than any of our previous guests on Raise the Line. For starters, he's the chair of medicine at Singularity University and founder and chairperson of Exponential Medicine, a cross-disciplinary program which explores how rapidly advancing technologies can shape the future of healthcare. Of particular significance in this year of the pandemic, he is chair of the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance Task Force, which is seeking solutions to address COVID-19 and improve our ability to predict, prevent, and respond to future pandemics. Dr. Kraft is a Harvard and Stanford-trained specialist in hematology oncology and adult bone marrow transplantation, and an advisor to several leading biomedical and digital health startups. He also serves as a flight surgeon practicing aerospace medicine in the California and Massachusetts Air National Guard with F-15 and F-16 fighter squadrons. And we go way back. I first heard his TED Med talk, uh, I think about almost a decade ago, and actually attended Singularity University as well. So Dr. Kraft, it's great to have you on the show today. Great to see you and great to see all the progress you've been doing in catalyzing the future of MedEd and everything else. Great. So, you know, I obviously know a lot about your background, and I think for our audience, which is primarily current and future healthcare professionals, I think they would love to hear in your own words, what got you interested in medicine and then specifically hematology oncology? Well, I was lucky to grow up in the DC area and uh, I always sort of like science in general. I spent a summer high school internship at the NIH and had to do a science fair project. Eventually, my science fair project ended up you know, winning all the science fairs because I came up with a way to cure allergies with a monoclonal antibody. And eventually that eventually got adopted into a drug called Zolaire by Genentech, though I didn't know anything about IP or, or biotech back then, but it was a fun entree into the idea that you could come up with sort of a science element and have that could potentially impact human health. And then I really sort of solidified getting into medicine when I went to Brown and I was a, we had a student run Brown emergency medicine service. So I got to be a crew chief and run around with code three sirens, mostly twisted ankles and drunk students, honestly, but it was a good experience there. And so I like the combination of, of both the research side and the and the clinical side, and that led me on to medical school at Stanford and beyond. And I think one of the challenges for me, I always, I guess, I've always sort of been hard to put into one bucket. And so even when I was an undergrad, I was learning to fly and doing immunology research. And then as a Stanford medical student, you know, uh, spun off to do uh, planning missions to Mars with the Aeroastro department, as well as getting into stem cell biology. And always like the sort of convergence of different fields, and that sort of helped catalyze sort of where I went next, instead of saying bucketed and starting medical school with the idea that I'm going to be X, Y, or Z. Absolutely. I think that's that's where creativity comes from, right? It's r- rarely in a vacuum. It's co- from combining elements from different fields. And so one of the, the things that I think you became first most famous for was inventing a way to get out bone marrow. And so can you talk about like maybe your first breakthrough moment that puts you on the map in terms of being a, a leader in healthcare technology? Well, I think sort of the high level concept I have, particularly for medical students or folks who are fresh into medical training, is that you sort of have a bit of beginner's mind. You can see problems in new ways. Like, why are you still using fax machines? Or when I was a bone marrow transplant fellow back at Stanford, after MedPeds residency at Harvard, uh, we were, I was in the operating room doing bone marrow harvests with a needle and trocar that hadn't changed in 30, 40 years. And I was kind of a sideline fellow on the new Stanford biodesign program, which is all focused on finding pain points and unmet needs and solving them. So my pain point literally was my hand was sore and the, the donor's rear end was painful in harvesting bone marrow and thought, well, there must be a better way to do that and kind of came up with this idea of what we now call the marrow miner, sort of a bit of a rotor rooter to go in, you know, one or two punctures as opposed to a hundred and uh, harvest bone marrow stem cells for bone marrow transplant or regenerative medicine or potentially banking or a whole new set of applications and tools. And so I like to, 
you know, coach, particularly folks earlier in their medical careers, that you have this perfect lens to sort of see things with a fresh eye. Keep a little notebook and journal. You can't solve all of them, but there's such opportunity to accelerate, whether it's building a learning platform or 3D printing a med device or building an app that might solve a problem for you or your patients, that it's an opportune time to do that. So that's how I sort of got into that, the medical device side of things. And that also bridged into digital health and, and other fields. So, you know, again, you gave this amazing TED Med talk, uh, I think a decade ago, and you've given more recently, you know, you have a great perspective on, on all things future of health, and would love to hear kind of how you think this COVID-19 pandemic has changed the adoption curve. Obviously, we know a lot about telemedicine. We've had people like Joe Kvidar on the podcast, who runs the American Telemedicine Association. But what are some of the things that you think are accelerated as a result of COVID that maybe you thought would have taken much longer? And then other things that may be taking a step back because of COVID. Sure. I mean, we can think in the positive terms that COVID is a bit of a catalyst. You know, and just as Sputnik sparked the space age, COVID in a sense can spark a true health age. And that hopefully some of the innovations, collaborations and innovations that come out of this horrible pandemic will lead to much better health and health equity and technology and solutions across the healthcare continuum. So I think sort of the, the, the positives out of it are that uh, clearly we've unleashed creativity and collaboration. I, I, I've been in so many different meetings internationally and otherwise just sitting in my home office on, on Zoom that have created hopefully impact and will uh, catalyze new solutions that help prevent future pandemics as well as address this one. I think obviously virtualized care, we've moved increasingly from hospital to home or hospital to hospital and the advent of remote patient monitoring and even you know the idea that a patient can simply have a pulse oximeter at home and use that in terms of triage and monitoring and, and therapy has sort of been accelerated. So there's that quote that, you know, in eight months, we've had, you know, eight years of acceleration of digital health. And because of the key pain points, you know, some of the somewhat uh, analog regulations like HIPAA, which was restricting ways we could talk on telemedicine and payment models have accelerated the telehealth side of the equation. I think the genie is sort of out of the bottle. We're never going to go completely back to, you know, pure analog. It's going to be more this blended model. And now patients and clinicians have been sort of forced into a bit of that virtualized element that's going to continue on. The other plus sides, of course, are now that we have uh, sort of a new interstitial of international learning and collaboration. We've accelerated, you know, the mortality rate on admitted ICU patients was what, 60, 80% early in the pandemic. It's gotten significantly better. We've accelerated clinical trials, whether it's for dexamethasone or immunotherapies. Uh, clearly, the example, uh, as we're seeing now in, in December of 2020, with the vaccines rolling out, you know, pretty amazing that we could sequence it basically create the uh, RNA vector and get into clinical trials by March. So those will lead to you know, other vaccines and therapeutics in an accelerated form in the future as well. So those are just a few of the elements that have accelerated. Part of it, again, is a bit of a mindset. And hopefully, we've recognized and now amplified some of the huge challenges and disparities, whether socioeconomic, all the way to challenges in supply for PPE or workflow, will hopefully catalyze you know, new solutions from the entrepreneurs out there. And any of you who are you know, quote unquote non-entrepreneurs, I would encourage you as a med student, resident, fellow, or post-grad for sure, to always be looking in for those opportunities and partner with the folks who can help build those solutions. You don't need to start a company to, to see a challenge and accelerate innovation. Absolutely. I mean, I like that in eight months, we've had eight years uh, of progress in digital health and obviously a lot of great initial public offerings of some of these companies that are maturing now. Eight years ago, I think I was at Singularity University. Uh, you were running the course on the future of health. And I, met, I actually did a smartphone physical on Sammy Inkinen, who was just starting to create Verta Health. And just a couple of weeks ago, you know, they announced the Series D and they're now a, a digital health unicorn. So it's really cool to see that progress being made. And um, no doubt that it's happened in the middle of COVID. 
you know, I'm curious, given that you run Singularity and Exponential Medicine, that's another hat you wear is these in-person innovation catalysts, conferences. You know, how has that changed because of COVID? Obviously, a lot of conferences have been delayed or, or done virtually. Can you talk a bit about some of the, the training you do and like how you've maintained the spirit of innovation even virtually? Well, first, a step back. So you were lucky to come to, I think, yeah, almost 10 years ago, the first exponential medicine programs, which we started with a pretty small group at our NASA Ames headquarters. And the idea there was... You know, most of us, we get more specialized, we get more siloed, I'll go to oncology meetings like ASH and the cardiologists go to ACC and the GI folks go to their GB and there's digital health and pharma and they're often pretty separate and often there's not a lot of cross fertilization. So the whole idea about exponential medicine in a nutshell was to bring patients, physicians, pharma, payers all together to kind of see what's cutting edge. And with that exponential mindset, another word we've heard a lot about this year, exponentials in terms of uh, the spread of a disease applies to many technologies, you know, from our smartphones, you know, and I when I was a medical student, we didn't have smartphones. I didn't get a, I didn't get a, even a mobile phone until I was a resident at Mass General. I mean, crazy. How do we operate? These sort of trends accelerate. It's often hard to appreciate those. And then when you can connect where AI, big data, 3D printing, wearables, internet of medical things, AR, VR, flip classrooms all come together, that's where the magic can happen to accelerate prevention, diagnostics, therapy, public health. So that's a bit of that lens around exponential medicine, which you've experienced. And that smartphone physical that you led off was an example of all those things coming together in your pocket that can really digitize and up-level anybody to do a smart physical exam that can integrate on per in person or in a telehealth context, as we've seen accelerate this year as well. So of course, we couldn't do our annual Hotel Dell by the Beach uh, live program with 800 people from 45 countries like we did the last few years. So we're doing a, a virtual program in late February of 2021, sort of shifting things up a bit. I think maybe people have a bit of Zoom and meeting fatigue, but we will try and keep some of that magic of how do you interact? How do you spark new ideas and collaborations from folks outside of your normal bucket? One example of, is beyond the technology piece. We know you, know, you might have this amazing you know, smartphone physical application, but unless it's paid for and regulated, it's a bit of a so what. Or if that data that flows to the clinician, they don't want to look at it or it's overwhelming. No one wants every EKG and pickup and, and uh, blood pressure number. So, you know, we want to go from ex exponential data to useful, actionable information and then narrow the gap between that new information to something you can use at the point of care in the clinic, in the ICU or a patient themselves. So I think what we have the opportunity in this blended, you know, virtual and hopefully in-person age is to kind of create the interstitial, you have an in-person meeting, but then you can have the digital touch points and virtual salons that can keep that energy and catalyzation of, of accelerating the future of medicine and move from incremental medicine, which many of us experience, to exponential medicine. Because in reality, some things haven't changed that much. When I go back to visit the, the ward at Mass General where I trained, it pretty much feels the same. <laughs> Still using fax machines, you know. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's again, the impetus of us starting osmosis, whereas day one of my med school journey at Hopkins, they were talking about how Hopkins set the standard for medical education a century ago, right? 1912's Flexner Report. And that was still being talked about as, as a big achievement where, you know, we felt like it was pretty antiquated and we could do better. So speaking of going exponential, another person I really liked interacting with at Exponential Medicine when I first attended was Peter Diamandis, another physician who I know you're friends with. And, you know, the XPRIZE is, is definitely something that you guys have worked on together. Can you tell us a bit about this XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance Task Force, as well as I know you were on a panel with our Chief Medical Officer, Rishi Desai, a couple of weeks ago for the Council of Medical Specialty Societies. XPRIZE's interest in reskilling and upskilling very quickly, given all the massive un unemployment that's happened over the past few months. 
Yes, the idea of the XPRIZE, folks aren't familiar with it, it was sort of stimulated originally by the fact that Charles Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic not to just for kicks, but to win a prize. And, and that when you put a prize out there for something audacious but achievable, some pretty amazing collaborations and solutions can come forth. So the first XPRIZE, I think 14, 15 years ago, is to get a non-NASA rocket into space twice you know, in two weeks. And that led to Richard Branson and others funding now Gale Composites, which turned into, hopefully soon, you can go to space, at least briefly. And we've launched several other XPRIZES since then. I came up with the Medical Tricorder XPRIZE about 10 years ago, which stimulated a bunch of teams and energy was one a couple of years ago to integrate, you know, a lot of these digital diagnostics into almost like a Star Trek inspired medical tricorder and several amazing teams and solutions came out, many of which are now in the clinic or moving through the FDA process. So when you set a goal out there, you can often achieve things faster and catalyze whole new industries, just like the, the sorry, XPRIZE for space, I think helped catalyze SpaceX and others. In the setting of the COVID pandemic, similarly, you know, we don't want, you know, a thousand versions of 3D printed ventilators, which was a hot thing early on, or new forms of PPE. You want to sort of help find the best flowers that are blooming and accelerate those. So the key challenges, it still is with the pandemic, is, is testing. Still often takes days, PCR-based, it's expensive, you get the swab to the back of your brain. So I was contacted by Jeff Huber, who's well known as the founder of uh, Grail, uh, and we put together and with the XPRIZE launched a rapid COVID testing XPRIZE in collaboration with this organization, Open COVID Screen. So how do we get, what we really need fast, like under an hour, cheap, under $5, easy, something you can do yourself and, and rapid and accurate COVID tests. And we put the call out, 707 teams from 70 countries apply. We've now narrowed that down to 200. They're all already done. There's their test kits now. It's the judging element. We're going to move down to 20 and eventually the final five. And those are going to hopefully accelerate around the world. And yes, vaccines are coming. We'll still need testing. And we'll often, hopefully, that will lead to new forms of viral testing for the flu or the cold or other elements you'll have you know, integrated with your smartphone. And so that's an example of an XPRIZE was launched. There was also an X challenge around better masks, you know, and that was for younger folks, I think college age and younger. And the five finalists were recently announced some pretty amazing innovations that are often cheap, but very effective making masks better, more comfortable, more effective, et cetera. So the idea of leveraging the crowd in a prize model is particularly effective. And on top of that, I've been sharing the XPRIZE Pandemic Alliance Task Force made up of 100 organizations from academics to NGOs to small companies and big ones like IBM and, and Microsoft with the idea that we want, again, to help catalyze solutions, not all in different ones, and, and get that cross-fertilization happening like we do at Exponential Medicine. For example, yesterday I ran a jam session. We had Rick Bright, who used to head BARDA. He was the famous whistleblower that the Trump administration fired for calling them out on their inaction and beyond that and is now on the Biden COVID task force. And we also had Mark Spolinski, who runs endingpandemics.org, had a fascinating conversation about, you know, how do we take the lessons from today and apply them now, but then also use those to prevent the next pandemics, whether it's with the individual and a wearable to detect their symptoms and crowdsource that all the way to a new forms of uh, internet and medical things for, for public health. So it's all about bringing smart folks together to solve things in new ways. I love that example. Actually, I've read a lot about Lindbergh, but I didn't realize it was based on a prize that led him to, to take that audacious trip. One thing we we immediately connected on is they're both our love for flying. I mean, you've obviously progressed way past and do acrobatics and all, all sorts of other things. But I think that's one of the first things we spoke about a decade ago is our love for healthcare technology. You know, I got my instrument rating too. And I think around the time I met you. There's some wonderful lessons from aviation that apply to healthcare. How do you present data in new ways and give you situational awareness as a pilot, which should also apply to healthcare because we're kind of flying blind. We practice not healthcare, but sick care based on that intermittent data that we get usually in the four walls of the clinic. And then eventually you might see it when you're face-to-face -face with a patient. And that gives us a reactive sick care model. And we're moving to this you know, continuous, proactive, hopefully healthcare area where you're going to have a dashboard on you, your patient, your population, your, your neighborhood. 
that can be used in sort of similar ways. And that needs design thinking. How do you design your cockpit? Can't be to the average pilot. It needs to be customizable based on what kind of plane you're flying, where you are. And we've seen other examples, checklists, you know, checklist manifesto, change the operating room. Simulation, which certainly applies to medical education, that's catalyzed a lot. There's a fighter pilot in Israel, who's also a pediatrician who built their, I think their very first uh, you know, medical simulation training, which has catalyzed models around the world. And now augmented in virtual reality, which is now you know, transforming how you learn to do surgery to even do collaborative patient interactions around a code. So lots of lessons, including crew, crew resource management. How do you talk to your co-pilot? How do you talk to your crew? That can apply to rounding on the word or, or an intensivist team in an ICU or OR. So aviation's fun. Totally. I think, I mean, there's so many examples that you just provided. You know, so... One thing I, I know we're trying to figure out at Osmosis, and you guys have it at the X Prize, is how do we reskill and upskill people very quickly? You know, twenty. I think at the height of the pandemic, forty million people had lost their jobs. Now it's down, I think, to ten to fifteen million. Some of these are not coming back, especially in in physical retail and some transportation. And over the next five to ten years, you know, because of automation, we'll have even more of that loss. And even some of the things that are highly skilled clinicians do will be replaced. I remember at, at Singularity University or Exponential Medicine, we had Vinod Kosla was a, a presenter and he famously said at that talk that 50% of, or it was 80% of what doctors do will be unnecessary in the next decade or so. And that he got a lot of flack for that because people interpreted it as saying 80% of doctors won't be needed when he was actually saying, you know, 80% of what they do, the medical billing, like all these other kind of rote tasks can be automated. Can you talk a bit more about like your vision for the future, the next decade of training, education, both in healthcare as well as just more broadly? And by the way, you, you'll sort of see things a bit early at Exponential Medicine. If you go to exponentialmedicine.com slash videos, there's great talks from Vinod and, and other sort of you know, known and unknown folks that kind of help catalyze folks thinking. But a bit of that is, is sort of the point that, you know, it's not that AI is going to replace the doctor, but the doctor using AI replace the doctor won't or healthcare system or nurse or pharmacy. And part of that means we need to, you know, as you're doing, rethink medical education. Who do you even choose for medical school? Is it someone as good at organic chemistry or memorizing? Is that the skill set you need today when everything's available on your smartphone or in your smart earbud? And in terms of upskilling, you know, you've probably seen you know, these AI-powered stethoscopes like from Echo, which can listen to heart murmur and do an EKG and diagnose a heart murmur far better than I can and probably most cardiologists. Or I recently got the butterfly, which can, with blended with AI, make almost anybody an ultrasonographer. And that's the early stages of this. So I think we can upscale you know, the community health worker, the nurse, the med student, the, the pharmacist, the dentist, you know, to use technologies like these to upskill diagnostics. Then, of course, the synthesis of that information, because there's no way our brains can keep up with every journal. You know, the old model of just looking at vital signs in labs and maybe looking at a paper or two is not going to cut it. So we can upskill everybody. I like to call it not AI, but IA, intelligence augmentation, which is going to cut across everything. And that means now in the pandemic age, we need new contact tracers. Uh, what if we had a, just like we have the Peace Corps, a global or at least United States public health corps volunteer corps, like ambulance and, and firemen can be volunteers and you're trained and you're upskilled. You've got your smart pad, you've got some diagnostic devices, you're the neighborhood public health element, and you can help screen, test, isolate, and be that lens, not just for preventing the next pandemic or epidemic, but helping address social disparities as well. So lots of opportunity there. And it's going to, again, I think, change med education and what each of us can do. If I'm a primary, I mean, I trained in internal medicine, pediatrics, never really good at dermatology, but now, you know, lots of apps you can put in your phone and at least enable you to do a better evaluation of that lesion as a melanoma or a mole. And I think we can leverage in this changing world for health, not everyone needs an MD or even a high school graduate to play a role in, in local and their own personal health as well. 
couldn't agree more. I mean, the public health core you mentioned, we're internally at osmosis, we call it the care core, trying to get as many people to be educated about their health. I mean, no time has been more important than COVID in terms of even getting people to do basic things like, you know, wear a mask because viruses are transmitted through respiratory droplets has been a big challenge. And one of the things I'm most proud of at Osmosis is partnerships with like the CDC Foundation and YouTube, which is launching YouTube Health to do that public health education, because the boundary condition is everyone is their own physician. That's something you and I have spoken about a lot. We also had Eric Topol on the podcast. And as you know, he, he wrote that book, the, the Patient Will See You Now. So the consumerization of healthcare is very interesting as long as it has stop gaps to back it up so people aren't doing you know quackery kind of medicine. I know we're coming up on time, so I had two other questions for you. The first is, you know, again, you've had a really inspirational and innovative career in healthcare technology. What advice would you give to current medical, nursing, and other health professional students about meeting the challenges of COVID nineteen and beyond? Well, I think again, it's it's a it's a time of of transition, hopefully acceleration to a, the next generation of of truly, you know, we don't want to call it just connected health, digital health, mobile health. This new era where we're really using all these technologies in smart ways. There's that famous quote that the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And, and many of you are wearing devices and might have the connected blood pressure cuff or AI assisted app, but are they being leveraged in the clinic today? You guys can be the own catalyst for that. If you have your own medical condition or have a patient with one, it may not be reimbursed yet or even FDA cleared, but you can try that relaxation app or the smoking cessation platform or the connected blood pressure cuff and use that with your care and start to learn what works. In the setting of the pandemic, we also have an infodemic. So we need to think about how do we communicate and personalize, you know, sometimes these digital communication forms as well with your patients, depending on age, culture, language. A baby boomer is very different than a millennial and how they want to interact with health, as well as how you educate folks who are now grown up as digital natives versus those like me and you are a bit on the cusp. To address that a little bit, you know, there's so much out there, particularly in digital health. I've recently launched a new platform, it's quite early, called digital.health, it's the domain where we're trying to help have a bit of an educational path. What's out there? What's the regulatory paths? What are new startups? And eventually have a bit of a digital health formulary. So you can find some of these existing tools and ones that might be coming and start to prescribe them to your patients. So my advice for folks would be to keep your minds open, stay cross-connected with other folks. If you're in a medical school, it's got engineering and business and law, cross-connect. Keep an eye on what's happening in AI and 3D printing and nanotech and synthetic biology and all these elements that are accelerating quantum computing may change healthcare dramatically. So if you kind of take that mindset like Wayne Gretzky, skate to where the puck is going to be, don't just think about medical school and medicine as static in 2020, which used to be the future. Think about where we'll be in 2022, 2025. Bill Gates says that famous quote, we tend to overestimate what will happen in a year and underestimate what will happen in a decade. I think the next decade will make the last 10 years look slow. Absolutely. I mean, you just said two of my favorite quotes. I mean, the Amar's Law of People overestimate the impact of technology in the short term. And that's something I know as as a futurist with all these technologies coming out, you know, we've been talking about remote patient monitoring for a decade. And like now to see a forcing function like COVID is very interesting and kind of brings it to light. My last question for you is, is there anything else you want to be able to convey to our audience about you, your background, exponential medicine, digital.health, et cetera? Well, I think the, the overall theme is as you go through your medical path and journey, you know, we're always learning, stay curious, try things out early when you can, because then you'll get a bit of insight of what's coming. A lot of the things that are out now aren't really that new. They're just now unleashed. And sometimes it means that all of us need to also play a role in helping the regulatory bodies. I saw some news today that finally HIPAA might be relaxed a bit. That was a horrible, in many ways, well-meaning regulation built, you know, was pre-digital and now needs to relax to catalyze 
data flow and, and better outcomes. Because uh, we've all seen patients die with their privacy intact. You might have preferred to have been living. So you have to play both sides of the equation. You might have a great idea, but understand you know, the four Ps. How does it play to the patient, the payer, the pharmacist, the, the, what other Ps are there? You know, all the, the, the bigger picture. And just like politics, healthcare is often local. It works in one hospital clinic. We like to think you know, in San Francisco, Bay Area, everyone drives a Tesla and has Google Glass and Apple Watch. That doesn't play out necessarily in Peoria or in other parts of the world. So I think a big opportunity is how do we democratize healthcare and platforms like Exponential Medicine. And one of my favorite quotes there was shared by Tony Young, the head of NHS Innovation. It's basically an old quote that, you know, the, the biggest challenges, you know, aren't, aren't the new ideas, but escaping from the old ones that we all have, whether it's how you organize a medical school curriculum or how you do in-person or virtualized care. So, you know, kind of think a bit outside the box while learning how to drive within it. And we can all be engines then to not just predicting the future of medicine, but, but creating it together. That's that's some excellent advice to end on. And so, Dan, I mean, thanks again for taking the time to be with us today. And more importantly, for the work that you do to catalyze all this change. And again, from a personal note, your TED Talk that I watched almost a decade ago was definitely inspirational to me as a medical student at Johns Hopkins. And it's just been really great to see all the things that you've done in in your career and and for, for the future of health. Thanks. And I have to go back and look at that TED Talk from 2011. But, you know, a lot of those things have now sort of come to fruition. And the trick is to, again, not have that failure of imagination. I mean, think two more clicks of Moore's Law. What's going to fit on your smartwatch? And what could you do with that for a patient? It might be blood pressure, blood sugar. What is AI machine learning going to enable you to do in a clinic in real time? What kind of digital avatars are going to be interacting with our patients and up-leveling each of us? And how might that even inform what field you might want to go into? Because some of them are going to be more augmented. Some of them still need more of the human touch. Again, it's a really exciting time for any of us in healthcare to be thinking about and catalyzing its future. Absolutely. And with that, I'm Shibri I'd like to thank our audience for checking out today's show. And remember everyone to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>